Man, this has been a busy week. So, obviously, as you can tell, D-Now is fresh on everybody's mind. Uh, this was my first year. This was my first year not leading a student ministry in D-Now. That was a little strange for me. Uh, but uh, not just D-Now. I mean, we have done all kinds of stuff this week. We started off the week, was it Monday or Tuesday, that we did the Lucky to Have You event. So many of you guys signed up for that last week. We got an opportunity to touch the community. We cooked hot dogs and cooked hot dogs and cooked hot dogs. And we, this week, my family and I have been eating hot dogs and eating hot dogs and eating hot dogs, right? And so uh, we got, got an opportunity to, to provide the, the meal for the families that would come for that free event for the schools. Again, so important. Um, it's amazing to hear uh, how people come to Lindsay Lane North, how they hear about us, how they, how they, they visit. And over and over again, I hear people, man, we saw your shirts at this event. And then we saw you in a, in a concession stand. We saw you here, saw you there. Uh, and we realized we just really wanted, we needed to, to come and check you guys out. Uh, and, and that's by design. We want to, now listen, now we don't make any qualms about it. The end game for us is the gospel. We want to bring people to the gospel. Otherwise, missions without the gospel is charity work, right? It's just charity work. But when you come with the intentionality of sharing the gospel, of bringing people to the feet of Jesus, that's when charity becomes missions. And so that's our end game. We want to be in the community for the community so that we can reach the community. And so we did that through the, uh, we did that through the Lucky to Have You event, excited to work with some of the, the volunteers and some of the parents doing that. We got an opportunity, uh, to be a part of the men's conference. How many men came to the men's conference? Anybody? I thought we had some. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. We got to hear Jonathan Evans and Tony Evans. Man, they did a fantastic job. We also got to see some ridiculously massive like works of taxidermy. Like when I say like, okay, so I'll just be honest with you. There are things, you know, being new and, and, and everything, like there are things that I hear and I'm like, yeah, that sounds dumb. All right. And so that was one of those things. They're like, hey, yeah, we're bringing taxidermy. Like we're bringing animals in. And I'm thinking like a random duck or a squirrel. And I'm like, yeah. I don't know how that's going to, even in a men's conference, like, I don't know how that's going to go, uh, in the four years of all these, of, of our church. But, man, these were not your average ordinary taxidermy. I mean, these were like full grown grizzly bears that had been stuffed. So it was incredible. So we got to do that. Man, I hope that you men were, were challenged as I was to be the leaders to set the spiritual temperature for your family instead of going along with the flow or, or even worse. Right, resisting the flow of what God is doing in your family to set that spiritual temperature for your family. And then with the Disciple Now weekend, man, our, our kids got to join with about five, six hundred other teenagers from all over this county. And so we have had a banner week for Lindsay Lane North. And so I'm excited to get an opportunity to share with you today. Nehemiah chapter two is where we're going to be today. Nehemiah chapter two. We're, we're continuing our series of doing work, right? This is that transitionary time where we're getting ready to be in our new building. We're excited about that, excited how God gave that to us. Um, an amazing thing, the building, the building itself, this is a tremendous praise. The building itself 
has been completely paid for by our Seed Division offering from all three campuses. It's been completely paid for. So y'all just give the Lord a hand clap of praise. That was, that was the vision. That's what we wanted to do. Uh, and, and we did that. And here's, here's even better news. Uh, almost all of the renovations have also been covered by that same amount. So God is... Yeah, amen, amen, amen. So we're excited about that, getting in debt-free so that we can immediately be boots on the ground, getting, getting ready, being that hub of operations here, a permanent. We're not just something that can pick up and leave at any moment. We're going to have a permanent, lasting impact in this community, and I could not be more excited about that. Uh, but we're in this series, when we're preparing for God, right? We're the, the series that we're in is getting ready for God to work, getting ready for God to move in our life. And so when we find ourselves in this period of, trans, uh, of transition, there's some things that we glean from Nehemiah that are important for us to apply to our life. We talked about last week prayer and how important prayer is and that prayer moves the heart of God. Right? Prayer moves the heart of God. And so I hope that you took an opportunity Last week, to just spend time in prayer yourselves as we guided prayer, as we dealt with things in our life that need to be dealt with, right? We were broken over the needs of others. We, uh, we repented of, of sin in our own life. And then finally, we were moved to action. And so today in Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah has just said, Amen. I truly believe that his prayer was leading. He was praying all the way to the king's palace to the to the throne room of the king the literal king right the persian king he was he was carrying the goblet still praying because chapter 1 leaves us with this this saying give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man he's saying grant me mercy give me success for doing what i'm about to do grant me success and then he says this I was the cupbearer to the king. That God put him in a position of tremendous influence. That he would be one of the most trusted men in the entire nation. His job was literally to taste test all of the, the, the drink that the king would consume. He would drink it first and make sure he didn't die. He was, he would, he was the poison control, right? If somebody wanted to dethrone him, they would try to kill the king through poison. And so that was something that he would do. And then he would present the cup to the king. But listen what it says. So let's look at the king in Nehemiah chapter two, beginning in verse one. As we look at this preparation, right? There is so much to prepare. When we were getting started, with Lindsay Lane North, with, with meeting here on campus, there was so much to prepare for. And I don't know if you know how a church plant goes, but man, we had multiple, multiple launches, what we called soft launches, where we would just have our plant team come in and we would set everything up, we would have a little service, and we would break everything down, and then we would critique and evaluate everything about what we did. We figured out, man, we, we didn't have enough goldfish in the preschool department, right? The, their chairs needed to be set up different. Um, Wi-Fi wasn't reliable. Man, we found all kinds of different stuff out as, as we did that. But we had to prepare. There was, there was a time of preparation that's exhausting, especially for someone like me. 
Now, there are people in this room, I'm sure, that are very logistically minded. We have some on our team. They love that stuff. It makes me want to die. I hate it. I hate evaluating. I just want to go, 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 focus ahead. Don't make me look back. Like, I just, let's go, right? And, and so, but, but sitting down, considering the cost, and figuring out how to do what it is that God has called us to do. And so, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to what it says. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine, uh, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. You remember, for night and day, night and day, persistently, he had entreated God. He had been fasting, preparing for this conversation. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Seeing that you're not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Nehemiah, at this point, things could have gone very, very differently than they ended up going. Nehemiah, at this point, if you were unhappy before the king, the king was the one who met all of your needs. The king was the one that was the supreme ruler, and in fact, for Persia, he was even seen as a god. And so to be unhappy in a god's presence would have been unthinkable. And so him coming in sad, I believe this was not something that happened on accident, that he was wiping away tears and trying to, you know, trying to make himself look glad, right? And had the puffy eyes and that's how the, I believe he was intentionally sad for a purpose. He wanted the king to notice, regardless of what that meant for him and his safety. And so he was afraid, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, right? As if, as if praying night and day for days and days and days wasn't enough, he had to offer up one more, right? For just a moment, just a second before he answered, he prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I might rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So based on the prayer that we hear in Nehemiah chapter 1, I believe that Nehemiah was intentional about this conversation with the king. Was there great risk involved? Absolutely. Similar to Esther, right? We know, we know about Esther and when she would go before the king. And remember there was, there was great fear and trepidation there because she was, she was worried that she would be killed, that she could request, even as the queen could request of the king something that would anger him and she could have been killed right on the spot. Nobody in enters the king's presence when he doesn't tell them to, and certainly when you come into the king's presence, you look happy about it. And so he bears that risk in order to meet a need. Why was this so important to Nehemiah? 
Understand this, we live in a very different time than Nehemiah lived. At that time, Jerusalem, Zion, Mount Zion, was the place where the presence of God resided. Right Now we understand that the Holy Spirit of God resides in each of us. And so when we gather, whether it's in a schoolhouse or whether it's in a building or whether it's in a lean-to, we are the church because the presence of God doesn't abide in stones and rock and mortar. It abides in us. You see, at this time, Jesus hadn't come. Right, This union with the Father was not possible. And so Zion, Jerusalem, was the place where God had promised that he would make his glory dwell. What was Nehemiah so concerned about? Why was it so important? Even in a foreign land, Nehemiah was concerned about the worship of God. You see, worship of God had all but stopped. And certainly the reputation in the name of Israel had been tarnished and God was not being worshipped in Jerusalem. Nehemiah was concerned about the glory of God and his worship on earth. You see, understand this. On the screen, doubt sees the risks. When we doubt... It's because we're seeing the risks. But faith sees the reward. Here's what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah recognized that he was one man. He was one man, but God had put him in time-space history for a specific purpose. Through prayer... Through fasting, through aligning himself with God's will, he realized that his plan in life was to be greater than even the risk of his own life. That the plan and the purpose that God had for him was greater. And here's what he did. He did a little math equation, right? Little old me versus the infinite worth of Almighty God. And for Nehemiah... His plan and his track was set from that moment on. Nehemiah, though, though he was afraid, right? And that's a very real thing. You know, that, that in the moment, in the moment when the, the cards are on the table, man, there's fear, right? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's fear. There's, there's pain that's about to be had. You know, there's, there's worry here. We understand that. But not my will, but yours be done. And so Nehemiah submitted to the will of God because he recognized there was something bigger at play. God was worthy of not just his worship, but the worship of the nations. God was worthy of the worship coming from Jerusalem. And it wasn't happening, and so he had to do something about it. He had to resume the worship. Listen, our Goal in life, the reason why we live and breathe for the cause of Christ after salvation should be the very same thing. No, we don't fight for worship to resume in Jerusalem or for for worship to resume in Rome or worship to resume any geographical location. Our plan is for, and the New Testament model is, for worship to exist in just one more. For our life, 
the goal of our life should be to see worship exist in one more. Worship is the most important thing, should be the most determ- the greatest determining factor to your action in the Christian life. It should be the most important thing to us. You go, well, Alan, well, what about, what about missions? The, listen, I love what, uh, what was said, and I can't remember who said it, but it was missions exist in other parts of the world. Missions exist here in Elkmont. We exist here in Elkmont because there are places and there are people and there are homes where the worship of God is not taking place. And let me tell you, church, God is infinitely worthy of every man woman, boy, or girl that will ever live, that has ever lived, God is worthy of their worship. And when we comprehend the greatness of God, then our immediate response is not only to worship Him, but to fix our lives so that we see that worship in others. To see worship reinstated, not in a place, but in the hearts of your coworkers, in the hearts of your classmates, students, in the hearts of that family member that you've long since written off, in the heart of your mortal enemy. Why? Because God is worthy of their worship. What moved Nehemiah? The worship of God. God's great glory moved Nehemiah to act. Doubt sees the risk, faith sees the reward. Great works of God begin with great faith in God. Great works of God begin with great faith in God. Do we really believe that God can make a quantifiable difference in our life? Do we believe that God can make a quantifiable difference in the lives of others? I'm convinced that if we really believe that, it will change how we live our life. So when, if that's not happening, there's only two options. Either one, we are so spiritually distracted that we've allowed our own worship to get in the way and cloud our vision of His worship, or two, we just don't care. Or we don't believe it. Do we believe that God can move on our behalf? Do we believe that God can move in our faith? Man, the Old Testament is full of stories of men that were against all odds. You ask, you ask Gideon, Right? If he was the one that devised the plan, if he should be held responsible for delivering Israel from the hand of the Midianites. You ask Jehoshaphat, who marched up his choir to battle, that when they topped the mountain, they saw that all three of their enemies had destroyed themselves. You ask Jehoshaphat, who deserves the credit. You see, you ask Jonathan and his armor bearer, right? That they were outmanned. They were outpositioned and they were outgunned. But Jonathan would respond with, God's not constrained to save by many or by few. So let's go whoop up on some Philistines. Do we believe that God can still act mightily 
on our behalf? Do we believe that? If we believe that, maybe the reason why that the church is in the condition that it's in is this world is because we are selling God short of what he can do in our lives. We don't believe him for it anymore. That's something that happened in the Old Testament. It's something that happened when Jesus had skin on in the world. But it can't happen today. The problem with that thinking is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if anybody has moved, it's us. He's constant and he's unchanging. Great faith activates the power of God in our lives. And the fact that God is able, God is powerful enough to meet our needs, God is powerful enough to intervene in the lives of others, should empower and embolden us to be his hands and his feet everywhere that we go. Listen to what Martin Luther said. The God whom we worship is not a weak and incompetent God. He is able to beat back gigantic waves of opposition and to bring low mountains of evil. The ringing testimony of the Christian faith is that God is able. The ringing testimony of our Christian faith is that God is able. And so if we are living in defeat, it is not a reality of God, it's a reality of ourselves and our sin. God is able. And that should move us. That should give us incredible, incredible faith in what God can do. Number two, let's look at the cost. Let's look at the cost. Nehemiah 2, verse 7. And I said to the king... Right, I'm not done. The king let me go. I was afraid. The king let me go. Nehemiah's on a roll. Let's keep going with this, right? If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. Right? It's not enough that you just let me go. Now I want you to give me letters to make sure that I have safe passage. He goes on. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the walls of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. Do you hear, do you hear how funny this is? Right? He, God gave him, he saw God move and the king said, sure, go, that's fine. Right? And he said, well, man, if God's going to do that, then maybe God will do this. God will, and then he's not, now he's not even talking about the city. He's not even talking about the temple. Now he's like, hey, I need a place to live too. Right? So how about some, throw some timbers my way? Right? And so he, he continues. You see this boldness. Right? But for the house that I shall occupy, and the king granted me what I asked. And here is the key. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Man, when we, get, when we operate in faith, when God's good hand is on us, listen, this isn't wealth and prosperity. What this is is provision. I'm not preaching that if you have faith, God will give you anything that you want. What I am saying is if you live by faith, God will more than supply all of your needs. More than supply it. 
Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent me officers of the army and horsemen. Right? Not again. Nehemiah's not just leaving. He's leaving with materials. He's leaving with folks. He's leaving with officers. He's leaving with army men. I mean, he is leaving with an entourage of people and a ton of supplies, all that God had provided for him. The same God on your screens, the same God that started a work in you will sustain his work through you. If God has started a work in you, he will sustain it through you. As we live in faith, as we live according to his design and his calling on our life, the same God that began a work will see it through to completion. God has not given up. God has not let you down. God has not proven himself unfaithful. The same God that started a work in you will sustain his work through you. And that's the order of it, is it not? God, begin a work in me and allow me to be so convinced by the truths of your words that it can't help, that I can't help but impact and minister to the needs of others through me. All that we will ever accomplish, this story What Nehemiah shows us is that all that we will ever accomplish was purchased by the king. Right? He came to Artaxerxes asking to leave. And the king gave him leave, allowed him to leave, gave him supplies, gave him everything. That Nehemiah, this was of no cost to Nehemiah. Not the timbers, not the the army, not the officials, none of it. God provided for everything through the king. And for us today, everything that we will ever accomplish was afforded to us through the cross. Everything. Everything that we have, everything that I am to be, every bit of impact that I'm ever to make, you'll never look at it and go, and we had this conversation just the other, just yesterday, actually. Um, one of my friends was not being real nice to me. He was, you know, doing what most of my friends do, and they pick on me a little bit. That's fine. I pick, I pick back. All right. I'm not, I'm, I promise you, I'm not easily offended. And, uh, he said something along the lines of, man, when, yeah, when North was started, I was thinking, man, Alan? And then, man, God just, God just did a work. Of course, I thought, oh, well, great, buddy, thanks. You know, I appreciate that, right? But that's exactly how I feel. I am, huh? It wasn't you. No, no, no. It was someone else. It was someone else. No, I said, you were in the conversation. You were in the conversation. You were in the conversation. You didn't say it, though. Um, But anyway, and so, and so, but I feel that way. Look, I recognize that there's nothing in my own merit that merits me to be doing what God has called me to do but that's the beauty of it that's the beauty of it is that in turn he gets the glory boy there's nothing if you're waiting if you're sitting here waiting for something special to come out of me you're going to be waiting a long time and my wife is leading the laughter that's all the proof you need right but man We serve a good God who is more than able to meet our 
needs so that he gets the glory for all that we ever accomplish. Number three. Number three, the crisis. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11. Listen to what it says. So I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. Verse 16, skip down. He, he visits all of these different gates, these different entrances to the city of Jerusalem. And listen to what he says in verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were, who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. He gave a testimony. Well, you see, I spent some time in prayer. And let me tell you what God did for me. Let me tell you about a conversation I had with the king. Let me tell you about what the king allowed me to do. Let me tell you about how the good hand of God was on me and led me, led us all the way here, gave a safe passage through, and has given us all the materials that we need in order to accomplish this purpose. Let me give you my testimony for just a second. And also the words of the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. What is the response? What is the response when we see God do miraculous things in one, in, in, in a person? We see a miraculous work that God performs in one person. What does it do? It inspires Others, let us, in light of this, in light of what God can do, in light of his capabilities, because we know you, Nehemiah, we know you couldn't do this on your own, right? Nehemiah, really? Right? Are you sure, God? Right? But we know it's not about Nehemiah. His God's good hand is on you. Man, let's get on board. That's how every revival that has ever begun in our history, in the history of the world, has begun. It's come through the obedience of a few that inspired the many. That believed God at his word. Had faith to take a stand regardless of the risks. And they saw God supernaturally provide for them. There's roughly 9,000 people, in the, according to the census, about 9,000 people that live in 35620, the Elkmont Code. The number that I always hear is the just over 400 that are in Elkmont proper, right? We've heard that number. There's about just over 400 people there. But in, three, in 35620, there are, there are over 9,000 people with roughly... 5,500 of those people being under the age of 40. As God was bending my heart toward this community, it's not that there's 
not churches. And listen, it's not that some those churches aren't being effective. Some of them are and doing a great work. But what I saw were those that were not being reached, that were disinterested, disengaged, or had been hurt by church. And I felt, and I knew in my spirit, as soon as this came up in staff meeting, like as soon as we started talking about it, I knew this was where God was calling me to do. I desired to reach. And so you, some people ask, right, why do you do what you do? Why do you look so much different than every other church in, in this area? And we do. We look very, very, very different, Right? Like, you look around and you see basketball goals. That doesn't happen in many churches around here, right? And so we look completely different, but we are intentionally so. Why? So that we can reach those. Why? Because the worship, God is worthy of the worship of every single person in this community and throughout the, the, the entirety of the earth. God is worthy of that worship. And that's why I'm called. And I, listen, I'm excited about partnering with churches in the air. I'm excited about reaching this community together. It's going to take all of us, right? I, I heard it said before, the milk industry is smarter than, than Christians, right? The milk industry doesn't push a brand of milk. They just push what? Got milk. Got milk. Why? Because they know that every person has a fundamental need for milk. Let a storm come through. Which doesn't never make sense. That does not make sense to me. Get the one thing that goes bad like in a week. Right? So everybody has a fundamental need for milk. But here's the thing. They know that if they awaken people to their fundamental need for milk, that there will be business for every brand. If we are about awakening people to the God-shaped void in their life, then there ain't, there's not enough churches in North Alabama that can hold what God could do. If we'll take him at his word. If we'll activate it through faith in him. But let me ask you this. Would what God has done in your life in the past... What God has done in you, would it inspire people for the future? Would, it, would what God has done in your life in the past inspire others toward the future? What was it that activated the people, the faith of the people? It was what God had done in Nehemiah. It was who Nehemiah was. It, was, it became everything that he was. And so because of his faith, they looked at that and they said, well, yeah, we're on board. Right? We're on board with you. Why? Because this is God's good hand is on you. We've seen his favor in your life. We've seen you do things that didn't make sense and God blessed it. Let's make our hands ready. Let's rise up and let's build. Not a church, not a structure, not a wall. Building the kingdom of God. What God has done in your past is testimony of what he can do in your future. What has God done for you? How has he provided for you? Here's what I want to do, though. That's part of the story of Nehemiah. But Nehemiah plays a crucial role in the grand narrative of history, 
of redemptive history. Here's what I want to do. Y'all got the slides ready to go? And just, I, I want us to look at, I want us to look at this, these pictures here. And I, I want you just to tell me what you see. All right? You got a, you got a freighter here. I want you to pay attention to that shadow though. What's that shadow look like? Like a city, right? So imagine if all you had to see was that city, you didn't have the boat there, you just had the shadow. Man, everybody in this room would go, well, that's a cityscape. That's exactly what that is. See, shadows tell us part of the story, but they don't tell everything. How about the next one? It's a giraffe, right? Anybody can see the figure that casts the, sca- the shadow. What does the shadow look like? My, wa- my daughter's dream come true is what that looks like, right? The, the unicorn does exist, right? Again, a shadow tells you part of the story, but it doesn't tell the whole thing. Next. Yeah. In reality, a boring... In reality, a boring gas lid. Man, you look at the shadow, and the the dark night is rising, right? All right, next. Yeah, so this is taxidermy gone wrong, right? You look at the head, and you think, okay, well, that's, you know, a mounted animal of some sort, and now he's some type of, Really scary thing, right? Again, shadows tell us part of reality, but they don't tell us the whole thing. Imagine waking up in the morning. The story behind this picture is that someone woke up every morning and this is what they saw in their window. Freaky, right? I'm moving immediately. Not a person, it's a chimney. It's the chimney of the house beside them. Again, shadows tell part of the story, but they don't tell the whole story. You see, Nehemiah, if we stop it with great moral lessons on how we live our life, basing our life as Nehemiah, we miss what God is doing in redemptive history. Because to understand this story biblically, Nehemiah is a shadow. He's a shadow of something to come. Listen to what Colossians 2.17 says. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Hebrews 8.5. They serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. Hebrews 10.1. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities. The shadow tells us part, but the end game For Nehemiah, point number four is the Christ. The end game for the story of Nehemiah is not about how we can really get up the gumption to do awesome things for our life. In redemptive history, the story of Nehemiah is foreshadowing of what Jesus will establish when he comes to earth. We like to identify with Nehemiah, right? Why? Because everybody likes to be the hero of their own story. We love to identify with him. But the problem is there's there's only room for one hero in your life. 
when the story of your life is told, there's only room for one hero. In Adam, we anticipate the one who will come and not ruin perfection. One who will come and be sinless. In Noah, we anticipate one who would save a remnant of, of humanity, not from physical death, not from drowning in a flood, but they would be saved, a remnant would be saved from spiritual death. In Adam and Isaac, we anticipate one who would sacrifice his son for us. Not that it would be stopped right before he does it, but one that would, that would literally kill his son for us. In Moses, we anticipate one who would write the law of God, not on tablets of stone, but on the fleshy tables of our heart. These are shadows. In David, we love to play David as, you know, we, uh, we slay the giants in our life. And listen, that's not a wrong interpretation. And taking these truths from Nehemiah is not a wrong interpretation of Scripture. But we would be remiss not to see the whole of the story. In David, we are not the giant slayer. In fact, we are more likely the rest of Israel that's cowering behind rocks hiding from our giants. And David is the one who would emerge to slay our giants for us. It's Jesus. Nehemiah is looking to restore worship in the physical location of Jerusalem. But the story of Nehemiah is a foreshadowing. It is a shadow, part of the story, but it's not the whole reality of one day the Messiah coming and restoring worship for all time. And we await that. Listen, if you have a relationship with Jesus in this room today, you are a part of that story. Nehemiah is just a foreshadowing. He is a type of one who would come, who would be the Messiah, who would set up residence in, and in our heart and in our life. More than reveal morals, the Old Testament is meant to reveal the Messiah. And so, yeah, we can, we can establish a lot of truth and we can glean a lot of truth from Nehemiah. But what we're going to do, every single service, every single lesson through this series, we're going to be pointing you back to Jesus because ultimately he's the only one that matters. He's the substance. These other things are shadow. The story of Nehemiah, you and I, we are shadows. The substance is Jesus. And the question is, is he the substance of your worship today? With every head bow and eye closed. Nehemiah sought to restore worship in Jerusalem. But I want you to know, over 2,000 years ago, the Messiah came to establish worship in my heart and establish worship in your heart. You see, if you're in here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, there's only one person in your life that you can really worship. 
There's only room in your life to worship one person, and that's yourself. So everything that you do, your thoughts, your actions, everything that you do is motivated by self-worship. And the problem with that is it will never satisfy. But like Nehemiah, our Messiah came. Jesus came, he lived a sinless life. He did what you and I couldn't do. He died a sinner's death on the cross, taking our punishment. And he rose from the dead three days later so that you and I could be worshipers of him. We could worship in spirit and in truth. And so if you don't have that relationship with Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity to respond to that. We have counselors that are in this room. In my left, your right hand, backside of the room here leading out toward the children's area. We've got counselors would love to talk to you about how you can know that you have a relationship with Jesus. You can get that settled today. Maybe you're here. and Maybe you need to... Maybe you need... You've been wondering for far too long. Maybe you've been walking at guilty distance. Maybe you know that you have a relationship with Christ, but maybe you need to link arms with a church that's going to hold you accountable, that's going to grow as you grow in the Lord. Maybe you need to join. Maybe you need to get your baptism in order. Maybe you just need to rededicate your life, just surrender your life fresh and anew to Jesus today. But whatever it is, whatever decision that you need to make today, listen, Jesus died for your worship if we would respond in faith if we would respond to the drawing of the Holy Spirit in our lives we can be new today whatever it is the Holy Spirit is leading you to do in these next few moments we pray that you'd have the boldness to respond Father, we thank you for what you're going to do. We give you this invitation. We give you this time. Pray that you be glorified and lifted up in everything that's done and said in these next few moments. Give those boldness. God, the enemy is keeping them in their chair. The, the enemy is, is, is uh, convincing them why they shouldn't move, why they shouldn't respond to what the Holy Spirit has called them to do. God, give them boldness to step out. Even now, even even before the end of this prayer, God, if someone needs a relationship with you, God, the counselors are there, they would, we would love to talk to them about how they can have a relationship with you. Even now, God, that they would get up out of their seat and God, they would respond to you in obedience. Whatever that looks like, whatever that means in these next few moments, God, we pray that you would be glorified and lifted up in everything that's done and said. It's in your your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. I Amen.